listening to the Stephen McGarvey Podcast. Here, one of the things that we talk to people about is that what enables us to differentiate ourselves is the ability to give others the experience of being understood. Your brain is an association machine. It connects things together. Mind is a terrible thing to waste. Now here's your host, Stephen McGarvey. And once again, welcome back to another Steve McGarvey podcast. Today we have the privilege, and I mean that very sincerely, of chatting with uh, Rhonda. And Rhonda, tell us a bit about how we met. I met Steve on we're on the cruise, Seaborn Sojourn, and we hadn't met before. And we started talking about my son William, who is dyslexic. And the more I mentioned it to Steve, he felt he knew exactly what I was talking about and understood exactly what William had been through. And Rhonda, Rhonda Stone, by the way, Rhonda, I remember um, as soon as I heard you talking, I thought, uh, this lady's been through the experience that I've been through, not herself, but in raising William and raising a child. And I remember sharing a story with you that my biggest fear in school was when we had to sit in a circle and read a book. And you'd read a paragraph each as you went around the circle. And I remember not listening to anything that was going on, but counting the number of people ahead of me counting down those paragraphs and then doing my best to practice that paragraph in my mind so that I'd minimize my stumbling as I read out loud. It was one of my biggest fears. And I, I remember you somehow knew what that whole experience I was like. I knew exactly what you were going to say. And, and I said my biggest fear was, and you knew what my biggest fear was. Reading well, was out loud. Reading, yeah. reading out loud and if someone had a short paragraph and did a good job on it, the teacher would say, you did such a great job on that one, read the next paragraph it's as like, well. Oh no. And, and I just felt panicked. <laughs> yes. Because I knew my paragraph that I'd gone ahead and practiced in wasn't my mind. Wasn't your paragraph anymore. Wasn't my paragraph. <laughs> the fear that that created yes. and the stress, uh, it, it was anything but a good learning environment. And somehow uh, you were able to enter into that storyline and knew uh, my sentences. You, you were able to finish them before I was even able to finish them. Um, so tell us a bit about William. Tell us a bit about uh, you as a parent raising someone who had some challenges with, uh, for lack of a better word, learning, at least in the, in the formal setting of school. William was, we, I'm American, but William, we live in England, William went to a nice little school outside of London and very lovely teachers, lovely fellow pupils, but he just couldn't learn his times tables and his readings weren't right, his spellings, it just wasn't going well. And we knew something was wrong and one of the teachers said, he was, he was almost eight by the time this actually happened, that he should be tested for dyslexia. and. My husband and I were, were horrified because no one in our family that we know of is dyslexic. But we thought, you know, we trusted these teachers and um, we thought, okay. So we took William to be, ha have a, a proper assessment in a town. It's about half an hour away from us and it was meant to be a wonderful lady who does all these evaluations and it wouldn't be a big deal for William. Well, as it happened, she couldn't be there on that day. It was someone else who was filling in. It was late on a Friday afternoon. It was cold. It was rainy. William was tired from a week of, of school. But we went, and 
these tests must have taken about two hours. Poor William, he just came out looking ashen. And we, my husband and I felt pretty ashen too because we didn't really know what was happening. Anyway, the, the, te the test giver called us in. William sat outside and he said, I've got bad news. Your son is v very dyslexic and he will never go to a normal school. We felt like someone had just said, like, your child has cancer. It, it, that's what it felt like. Because we really didn't have any idea that it was even dyslexia, even a little bit, much less severe. So we drove home and William was so tired, but he said, Mommy, how'd I do? And I said, you did great, honey. You did fantastic. And we told the teachers, and even though it was a private assessment, it didn't have to go in William's school records, but we showed it to the teachers, and they said, we will do as much as we can to help and to keep him at his little school that he'd been in. For those that are listening that may not have someone that's gone through this or have any direct connections with it, what is dyslexia? Help, help the audience understand what does that mean? So when you heard that as a, a label or as a diagnosis, so to speak, um, what does that mean? I think it means different things for different people, and I'm not an expert by any means, but um, often, mostly, I think it means that you can't process what you see. So you can look at words and letters. They either sometimes jump around, or you see them in a different order. It's the same with numbers, but numbers are a bit different. Um, it can be a lot of things for different people. So in general, is it fair to say that it makes it more challenging for someone to learn in a traditional sense? Very much so. So they have to come up with alternative ways, alternative strategies of learning. Um, one of the things that I've found when people would come into my private practice with various labels like learning disabled or attention deficit disorder, I, I would always ask the child, the teenager, what does that mean to you? And they very often look at the parent and say, I don't know, mom or dad, what does it mean again? So it's interesting because if we're not careful as to the meaning that we attach to it, we can end up installing very limiting beliefs within kids or teenagers. Well, quite, and I think just the label of being labeled is part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I would tell kids, they, they very often say, well, it means I'm not good at school. It means I can't learn. It means, and I would very often say to them, actually, it, it means comp something completely different. It means that you can learn, you just learn differently than the average person. Absolutely. The average person can only pay attention to one thing at a time, where you have a gift of being able to pay attention to multiple things simultaneously. And it's just a matter of harnessing that and learning how to use it effectively. So t tell us more about William. So you, you had this test. You went and talked to the teachers at the regular school. Mm. They said they'd help in whatever way possible they could. How did they adjust their teaching style? How did that move forward from that point? They were really fantastic. And they already knew William. But they took him out for special lessons, special reading lessons. Um, they worked with him on his spellings and phonetics and times tables and you know he learned little tricks everybody should learn those tricks and that really helped a lot but having spoken to William he's 25 now 
but he said he remembers being taken out of class to go somewhere someone else, you know, and he hadn't had that before. And his friend's like, where are you going? He's like, oh, I have a special class. And they're like, what, what do you mean? So th even though it was being very helpful, it set him apart a little bit more. Yeah, I, I still remember those classes and being called out to them and the little machines that you'd stare into that tried to help you read faster yes, and they yes, adjusted the yeah. time and you were seeing the sentences at a time yeah. and uh, yeah, lots of, lots, of, lots of different strategies. So you said that he learned, William learned little tricks off the top of your head. What were some of the most valuable little tricks that he learned? Uh, some of the, well, the easiest thing was trying to read, don't look at the whole page, put a blank piece of paper over the words you're not reading right at that moment and do it line by line. That helped him a lot. And one of his stumbling blocks was that he would have, when he was younger, maybe a page to read or a few pages. And, you know, as he got older, it was like a book. And he, he started out saying, Mom, I can't, I can't do this. I said, yes, you can. Start on page one and we'll do one page. See how it goes. And then we'll go to the next page and suddenly you've finished a chapter. But you have to break seemingly undoable task down to small steps and that still works. That still holds true today for almost any project. I, I think you, things that seem overwhelming, you say, no, they're not. They're really not. But you have to schedule when you're going to do everything and then, then you can do it. I think that's a, a really interesting trick for the audience to learn in general or, or to be aware of. Mm. I still, even as an adult, if I've got too much on my plate and I focus on the big picture, I get overwhelmed and then I tend to procrastinate. And the more you procrastinate, the bigger it seems to be as a problem. The more you avoid it, the more it kind of spirals downhill. Whereas if I sit down and break it down into, as you said, yes. into those smaller pieces and then just focus on that smaller list, that smaller checklist and what do I need to get done today, it helps me get out of the overwhelm and get into a more resourceful state. Yes, because I think part of the overwhelm for William uh, initially was time pressure that makes everything <coughs> ten times worse. And then, then he would be more likely to n really not be able to, to do it. He'd get upset about it. He was still capable of doing it, but because he got upset about it, it just made it more of a chore. I remember in the early years, I never finished an exam because I always ran out of time. And the panic of knowing I wouldn't finish, again, puts you in a less than resourceful state for, for having the information flow from your unconscious mind to your conscious mind, even in that moment as you're writing an exam. And sometimes after I'd leave and the pressure was off, the answers would pop into of my course. head. But it's also seeing everyone else put their pencil down 10 minutes yes. earlier than you. It's like, oh. Yes. <laughs> and then I remember those special classes that you said that you get taken out to yeah. for reading or for spelling mm. or for those things. I remember eventually um, they were able to get me a bit more time on some of the exams. But then I still had to do the exam in the special class, which again changes the dynamics of what your experience is with that whole educational system and environment. Well, even through university, so William... Wait a second. <laughs> he actually got to university. He got to university. I thought he wasn't supposed to go to a regular I school. I know, I know. <laughs> to all those naysayers, he went to University of Edinburgh for four years and got a master's in art history and architecture. And then he went to Oxford University for a year and got a master's in history of art and visual culture and did very, very well. But... I am the first one to run over to those people, <laughs> take, waving his certificates, 
saying, look what William did, and you said he couldn't do it. Yeah. Take him to the teachers that said he couldn't do it. Yeah, it it's, it's amazing how um, limiting beliefs or perceptions of others can hinder us from accomplishing what we're truly capable of. And one of the things that we say, if, if we believe something is possible or not possible, we tend to manifest that for ourselves. Whereas if, as you did, encouraged William, yes, you can, and get him moving in that first step forward, then the next step and the next step, before you know, you've actually accomplished it. And then you can use that to reinforce a belief that it is possible, I just need to figure out a way to do it that works best for me. I, we never thought it, it wasn't going to be possible for William. and my husband and I just encouraged him all the way along and everything that he did any positive thing was was great and if he couldn't do it say well no but look you can do this and why don't we why don't we do that so tell us more about some of these uh, key points on this this journey from these early years this test through to I mean Oxford Oxford's one of those schools that p people dream about going yes. to um, one of those, I, I guess, Ivy Leagues, that, that's what they call them, right? An Ivy League school, Ivy League University. Yeah. Um, I, I just know that people that go to Oxford, it, it's kind of like you go to Harvard, you go to Yale, you go to Oxford. It's, it's up there among In England, the it's either Cambridge or Oxford. Really. Cambridge. Those are the two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So tell us more about the journey. Uh, you as a parent, what were some of those things that you encountered? How did you help William overcome those? I'm sure some of our listeners um, who've either got children or grandkids that are going through similar things, uh, they could use some tips and clues and, and hints from your experience and from mine. And I, again, thank you so much for uh, sharing this uh, this journey and for, it's just something that it's fun to meet somebody who actually gets what you've been through. And I could tell within the first five minutes of talking <laughs> to you that you get it. <laughs> I do get it, I do. I'm at one point, so after William was in, uh, primary school we had to decide where he would go next and there was a school that was recommended to him that was about 45 minutes away so he'd have to go on a bus but that that would have been fine but they said why didn't you look at this other school first which we did and it's a very specialized school for severely dyslexic children and while William was very dyslexic um, this was a such a special school that you it, it was a boarding school William would have had to live there, and he was, I think, 10, 11 at this point. And I just said, that's, I'm sure it's wonderful, but taking him out of the family would have been far worse than anything that he would learn. He would have fallen apart, and I knew that, but maybe that's just instinct as a, as a mother. Anyway, so he didn't go there, but he did go to a school that was recommended to us, which unfortunately, I think we're going through some troubles of their own, and the teaching staff were not what we were told they would be, and William really, really, really struggled. And we, we as parents, you try to make the best decision, but this is what his teachers had recommended. It was not the right decision. And um, kind of midway through maybe February, March of that year, I took him out of school. And I said, I would rather homeschool you for now. And so that was really traumatic for poor William, trying to, you know, go to a new school make, with all new people and having that just not, it just, it just nothing gelled. And we then found a school right in town that didn't have any special dyslexic help per se, 
but it was small and they were focused on William and then that was also when we still had a special tutor once a week and we did that for probably a couple of years. And what did they focus on with the tutoring? The tutoring was one-on-one, -on -one, very intense and it was learning really it was learning tricks and mnemonics was one that really helped William to be able to remember a list of things because because otherwise he, ju he just wouldn't be able to. But it's associating um, an object with what you're supposed to remember and for William who who is all who is an artist and paints and draws it was associating that with visual and once he once he could do that he was it was already you could tell it was it was working they also did mind maps so you're drawing and for him he needs to see it and again that really helped him so for our audience that, that's listening to this this mnemonic thing may sound interesting let's give them a sense of how that actually works as though we're teaching them how to do it so if we were to get them to remember a list of five things for example how would the mnemonic system work in the context of remembering five things well the one that William learned was one bun two shoe three tree four door five hive so you associate those words with the thing you're trying to remember so he might be trying to remember um, spelling words, maybe, or, or facts about something, but you associate the word with, so it's one bun. Why it's bun, I don't know, but it is. And so you think of like a, a bread bun, and that thing, either as a bun or with a bun on its head or holding a bun, something that's a visual that you can hold on to. And the same then is two shoes. So you, the next thing is going to be wearing shoes, even if it's something that doesn't wear shoes and he could keep those visions in his head. It's interesting because I learned a system. It was actually off of television. My father thought it was crazy for buying it. He said the only people that are getting rich are those people that are selling this stuff. And I remember thinking if I learn how to memorize a list of things by buying this thing, then it's well worth it for me. And I remembered a system like you're talking about where one was tree, two was light switch, three was stool, four was car, five was glove, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And we would learn, so one tree, so if somebody said, oh, the first thing on your list to memorize is a horse, I would have to have, uh, you know, a bunch of horses as ornaments hanging from the tree. Yes. That was the first thing, because one was tree, so I had to create a connection in my mind between the tree and the thing that I needed to remember. Yes. Is that similar to the it way? It is, uh, and he used those, he used that all, all through his education, he still does. Yeah, yeah. I, I teach that when, when I had private practice. I would teach that to young people. And they ended up, they were so proud that they could memorize a list of 20, 30, 40 things, forwards, backwards, randomly. You could say, what was number 19? They tell you. You could say, what number was the palace? They tell you what number the palace was. So yes. it, it creates that connection in their mind and gives them a, a solid strategy for learning. I think it's probably a good technique for anybody to know, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's a shame. I don't remember ever learning those in school. I remember no. having to learn them long after I yeah, finished Yes, so it is a school. shame because it's an easy concept once you understand what it, how it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's also systems for memorizing numbers and all kinds of different things that I'd encourage people to look into if they've got someone who has challenges learning, a, a teenager, a young person. There's all sorts of things that they can do to help them yeah. by learning uh, systems like that. Yeah. 
So Rhonda, tell us a bit more about this journey of learning that William's on. He's told in the early stages that he's not going to go to a normal school. You don't tell him that. You tell him he did really well on that test. And now we, you've taken us through some of this journey. Tell us a bit more about this journey as he uh, you know, prepared for the later grades and for going to university. Uh, what are some more of the key things that our listeners would like to hear would benefit from uh, hearing about this journey of William's? And yours, for that matter. <laughs> yes, we were all on it together. I think that um, for us, for, for William, he was always interested in everything. So even though he couldn't really read, he still loved books. And I would read to him constantly. So the appetite to learn was there and the desire to understand things even quite complicated when he was young. He wanted you know me to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. So. He knew, he is, he's a very bright boy, but he just would never have been able to read those. So we kept reading. We also had books on tape, and if he'd listen to those. If we were in the car, going anywhere, and as a family, we would listen to them. And that was a nice kind of bonding <laughs> experience. We had the Harry Potter books on tape, and they're very well read. And so we wouldn't feel left out that he couldn't read them himself other kids were talking about, ooh, have you read the latest Harry Potter? And he, he'd heard it, or I'd re read it to him. We kept up with the special lessons for quite a while. I think it was really in what would be the equivalent of, not quite high school, but, uh, well, in England it would be junior and senior in high school. That's when he really found teachers who really got him and kind of got him hooked on the subject matter. So history was one he loved, English and, and books. And he had two teachers who encouraged him so much and said, you can do it. And, and we knew he could, but it took a while before he knew he could. Um, so then in England you have your um, you have GCSEs which are a set of exams William actually did very well on those then you have A-levels which are the next set of exams William did very well on those but that for all those exams is special tutoring and because he was dyslexic he did get extra time in his exams and he was allowed to not he didn't have to take them in a big gigantic hall with 200 other people. He, he had a special room and for him I think that took some of the pressure off of what he knew he had to do because it was hard. It was hard. We always tell parents that learning is state dependent and if we're relaxed when we're learning and studying and we're stressed when we're taking an exam, it jams up the information and, and stops it flowing from our unconscious mind through to our conscious mind. And it, it's like trying to remember somebody's name and you're, you're putting the pressure on yes. it and the moment you stop trying to remember it, it pops into your head. Yes. And, and I think for <coughs> with the exams, it's removing other distractions so that the information that William did know he could get down on paper. Yeah. And you know, his handwriting is atrocious. It's terrible. And sometimes that was difficult for the teachers to read. He was writing some good stuff. But that affected, um, I think, their perception of what that test was. Like, oh, that looks like a mess. That child must not know what they're doing. 
he did. Um, and that continued through that he then ended up at university and that he still, he still was allowed extra time on exams if he wanted to. He didn't want to take it because by then he thought he, he should be with everyone else. He didn't want to be set aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did very well. It's funny because as I'm hearing your story about William, it's it's reminding me of things that I went through that I haven't thought of in a long time, mm. including getting maximum points deducted because of spelling errors. Oh, and they spelling. would take oh. the points off, and then they would accuse me of not proofreading it. And, and I would tell them, I did proofread it. I proofread it two or three times. It looked right to me because I'd spell it out and sound it out phonetically. And most of the English language, you can't even spell phonetics phonetically. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And English is probably the worst language <laughs> yeah. to try to do that. And yes. Yeah, so, so even if I looked at it, I could look at it a hundred times. It still looked right to me. Um, whereas vi- uh, visual people will look at it and see that the word is spelt wrong. I would sound it out and it sounded right to me. It just looked right too. Um, whereas uh, spelling in general is a very visual strategy. People that spell well tend to see the words. Yes. Um, whereas I tended to sound them out and still do. I'm still one of the worst spellers in the world. Well, I think it helps with spell check these days. It, it does. <laughs> Natalie, sometimes. Sometimes. Natalie says spell check can even help me sometimes with the there, there, and the theirs. And well, quite. A few other words that right. it, it just, the word is there, it's spelt right, but it's the wrong choice of spelling for the word. Yes, and William still has trouble with some of those, but I think <laughs> everybody has trouble with some words. I'll, I'll have to meet William at one point in he the will. future. I would love to meet him. Well. So, university, Oxford University. Uh, where else did he apply when he got accepted? How did he react to it? How was his confidence built from this young child who had challenges learning through to somebody who's now excelling at Oxford? Um, tell us a bit more about that. How did he re- react? Who else did he apply to? Uh, well, when William was ready to graduate from the equivalent of high school, he was in, it was a six-form college, very large school, but not everybody, in fact, not many people went to university. So William had in his mind he wanted to go to Cambridge. And we had some friends from Cambridge who said, this is what you need to do. So the system in England is, if you're applying to Oxbridge, which is Oxford or Cambridge, you can apply to one university or the other, but each university has 20-some colleges in that make up the university. And you can only apply to one college in one university. So... William chose a college at Cambridge to apply to. We had friends there, and he'd been there many times, and the, the school was not as helpful as they could be with interview techniques, and um, if you're applying to Oxford or Cambridge, the application process is very different than anything else, very challenging. William got in, he, got in, he did his interview, and he just missed getting in by like one point to Cambridge and he was crushed and they said take a gap year and apply next year not quite with a wink but try, <laughs> try again yeah we thought okay we had been thinking about that a lot of um, high school age children take they take a gap year in England it's not uncommon at all and yeah. William did amazing things he went to Japan, he worked for charities, he, he did all kinds of things. Oh, the other thing he did, I didn't mention this, Steve. One of the main things for William with dyslexia is 
we were told he should take up karate. Karate. And we were like, martial arts, our child, I don't think so. <laughs> but we found a nice kind of family-run group in town, and William started. And, you know, they start you in the little white pajamas with the white belt. It's <laughs> called a gi, but... And he started progressing, and he was doing really well. And there's something about the discipline, apparently, of karate that um, focuses your mind in a certain way. And so he started doing this. Uh, he was probably about uh, maybe 13 or 14 when he started. And he's a black belt now. And it, it, I couldn't say for sure that that's what helped him so much, but even if you're not dyslexic, there's something about um, it's it's very studied. There are certain moves you have to do in a certain way, and it's the respect of the other the teachers and students. Anyway, he wanted to go to Japan to work at, or to learn one of the dojos there, and so that there's something to that. And he did that in his gap year. He did. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, and he learned some Japanese. And I said, are you sure you want to go alone? Because I thought, oh, gosh. And I thought, oh, he's a black belt. He'll be fine. That oh, my. You know, <laughs> in Japan, everyone's probably that black belt. <coughs> but he was absolutely fine. Anyway, he applied to, get to Cambridge the next year. And again, we, what we didn't know is we applied to the wrong school. Well, they're not the wrong, wrong college. But there was, there, was, there was only one place for history of art. And there were two people who were in the running, and William was one of them, but apparently there was another girl who was unstoppable, and she got the place, so William was really crushed. But in the meantime, he had applied to university in Scotland in Edinburgh and got in there and never looked back. He, he loved um, the city, the university, and for William studying art, my husband, who is an artist, always says this, that if you're studying art, you should be in a city that has art, and Edinburgh is a fantastic collection. So that was wonderful. And then by the time William had graduated with honors, he applied to Oxford to do a master's for one year, and that was not a problem. He got he got in. And what does William look forward to as far as the future, his career? He's he's graduated now from Oxford with honors. Yes. And what 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 are his goals moving forward? He is, well, so this is a bit ironic. What what he's chosen to do is go into filmmaking documentaries. Um, at the moment, he is a researcher, and that. <laughs> That means he has to look through lots of information, sometimes at a very, with a real time pressure, to um, find out about stories that need to be told. He wants to tell others. He wants to tell stories that no one has told yet. So the documentaries he wants to make are not like ice truckers. Sorry, any ice truckers <laughs> out there, but things that he would want to watch, stories that haven't um, been talked about. And he's doing it. And I, I asked him, I said, if you had a choice and didn't have to deal with dyslexia, what would you say? And he said, I would never, ever 
want not to be dyslexic because it makes me think outside of the box. It makes him think outside of the box, and I think that's one of the key things here. You've got a child who you're told will never attend a normal school, who graduates with honors from Oxford, and wouldn't give up his so-called disability because that disability has become an ability that enables him to think outside of the box. Absolutely. And, and just in final words of wisdom for any parents that are out there listening to this as we wrap it up, uh, from your journey as a parent, any final words of wisdom for parents out there who may be raising a, a child with a learning disability? I would say just be sure you, you keep encouraging your children, no matter what they do or don't do, whatever's good, praise it and keep doing it. And, you know, William's 25 now and I I'm very happy we can, you know, he's with his spelling and his grammar. He knows the correct deployment of semicolons. He, kn <laughs> he knows all of that now, but I still encourage him. He's we come do. a lot further than I have because I still get those things messed up. <laughs> I'll give you a lesson. <laughs> okay, I'll take you up on okay. that. Rhonda, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for sharing William's journey with us and your journey as a parent, or you're both parents, yes. your journey with him and raising him. And I think uh, others out there that are listening will get a lot out of this and uh, be encouraged by you sharing your story with us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you.